we've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Hey, welcome back to the podcast, and it's episode 64. I have a whole new setup for my podcast recording, and so I'm still really working out the kinks in it. Anyway, you can hear Pastor Allie Deckard really well in this episode. You're just going to have to give me a grade on the curve for this episode as I'm still trying to figure out my end. And there's something on my desk that is bumping or something like that. So I gotta, I'm got i going to figure that out. I'm not quite sure yet. Anyway, you know, you did. I did like a test run, but it's not the same as when you're recording the actual podcast. Anyway, figuring all those pieces out. So I am excited, though, for you to meet her. She is the worship pastor at Paz Naz, which is a Nazarene church in Pasadena, California. She's been writing music since she was 12, and she talks about her writing process, writing music for her congregation also. We get into the theology of worship and talk about God using this time to refine us. Uh, also teaching theology through the sung word, not just the spoken word. And, and, and so so singing as a form of preaching, in a sense, and a form of discipleship. And, and it's just a great episode. There's We kind of cover a lot of ground. And she released a, a new single. So in the show notes, I have her website. I'm going to include a clip of one of her songs or one of her singles that was just released. She's releasing three singles over the course of the next couple of months. And I really want you to support her. Follow her on Spotify. She's also on Instagram, uh, Allie Deckard Music, I think it is. I'll put that in the show notes as well. So feel free to share this. We are on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. You can follow us on Podbean. This is her story. Life has its own website if you want to stream it the podcast episode online so there's lots of ways for you to share this episode and enjoy what you're about to hear because my soul grows it's desperate for you California things are I don't know what it's like kind of with the pandemic there but it's just wild really really wild here right now so just kind of taking things one day at a time and trying to rest when I can and uh, lots of staying at home I'm in the office today to do this um to record because I didn't trust my puppy to be quiet while we recorded but I haven't been in the office here for months I don't know that it ever really officially lifted. I think the stay at home order has, I, I mean, I, there were times where people were being a little bit more lax with it, but I don't know that it actually officially ever lifted, but I think maybe this would be the second time that people are really observing it, I guess. Yeah. We've been kind of encouraged to stay at home since March for 10 months. So I happen to be in a County 
that's really high because I'm just outside of Detroit. So Wayne County, our county has like 25,000 more cases than any other county in our state. So we've had more restrictions, but yeah, we're just coming out. We did, we've been really conscious to stay in step with our community. So the community, like when the schools go virtual, then we go virtual. Yeah. This Sunday is our first Sunday back. All the numbers went high again. So we went back to virtual. So this is our first Sunday kind of back. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. We when things first kind of started, well, okay, so we have five language-based communities at Paznaz, and two of them are 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 Chinese. We have a, just by the very nature of our friends in those communities, um, many of them were very aware of what was happening in China before it um it kind of hit the US. Our our pastors in those communities started telling us this, like this is gonna be big, like in January. And we were all like, oh no, 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 it's gonna be fine. Um, and they kept saying, no, like we need to, we need to prepare here because it's it's gonna be here, it's gonna come. And so toward that time, it was like the end of February, beginning of March, we had a bunch of staff meetings as a whole staff to kind of talk through, okay, what are going to be our guiding principles um, for this? And one of those is kind of what you said to, to care for our community well, and to partner with our community well. And um, along with other things, you know, being wise, but not fearful, being good stewards, all those kind of things, just to see what that's looked like and how different churches have just kind of chosen to care for their communities in different ways. And there was no, nothing in seminary for that. No, there wasn't. No classes. we've we've been here 10 years and we just we've earned so much trust in our community and so that's kind of been our mantra going forward with this of earn this trust once you break it it's really hard to get it back so let's be careful as we go through and so a lot of our decisions we just kind of keep saying that remember we are living off of trust right now yeah yeah we don't want to have to go back to earning it all over again so we've we have uh you know abundance in our bank account right now as far as you know i'm talking about your trust right, bank, right. You know? yep. and so let's not deplete that now you're at pasna so you're in pasadena and how long have you been there so i arrived here july 2017 so it's been about three and a half years and now your senior pastor just resigned yes in september yes. um went back to chicago so she and I actually grew up in the same hometown, but we did not know each other until I moved out here, which is kind of strange. But so yeah, she's back in in Chicagoland caring for her family. Yeah, and then and did Tara bring you on staff? She did. Okay, so when she came, you were part of her new staff well, team. A year later, so she I think like she'd been here for like fifteen months before I was brought on. But yeah, she I was one of her first hires, I think. And so where were you before that then? Yeah, I was in Chicagoland. Um, I guess I don't have to say that to you because you're from the Midwest. <laughs> I have to say that here. Um, an hour south of Chicago, Bourbonnais, where Olivet Nazarene University is. I grew up in Bourbonnais. So I lived there for 27 years before I moved out here. Um, and I was at Kankakee First Church of the Nazarene. So, so then, then I'm guessing you grew up. So you grew up in the church. You grew up at Kankakee. That was your I, did, I didn't grow up at Kankakee. So I did grow up in the church, but I have a little bit of a kind of a cocktail of denominational background. Um, my, my grandpa is a, is a pastor in the Southern Baptist tradition. Um, and so I was born into that church, but then pretty quickly, my brother and I started attending when I was three years old, I started going to a preschool at a Lutheran church and my brother started attending, attending that school as well. And the church, uh, the school had a church that was connected and affiliated with it. And so I went to a Lutheran church and was in a Lutheran tradition until I was 10 
And then around that time, we were looking to switch schools. We were going to switch from the private school system to the public school system in our area. And we also felt like that maybe would be a good time to switch churches as we were kind of leaving that community a little bit. Uh, at the time, my my mom, my mom who was a nurse, um, had a really good friend at work. And that friend's husband was a youth pastor at a Nazarene church in Mantino, um, Illinois. And uh, he came and visited our house. Um, my brother at that point was in eighth grade. And he visited our house and in, invited Brandon to come to youth group. And so my brother was really the inroad to the Nazarene church. He started getting connected there through the student ministry. Um, and then pretty shortly after our whole family started attending that Nazarene church from there. So I didn't, I didn't start attending a Nazarene church until I was 10. So you're still pretty young. So you were influenced quite a bit because, you know, Southern Baptist and Lutheran would definitely not be like, woohoo. Uh, not even close yeah, to the same type of tradition. You call in your life. So how early did, did you start to hear that call? It was pretty early. Um, it wasn't before that time. I would say there have been definitive moments in my life where I feel like the spirit of God has been like, this is what I have for you. And this is what I want for you. And those moments came much later in my life. Very early in my life, though, I feel like my call to ministry was cultivated by the church, was cultivated by people that would say, I see a gifting, I see an anointing, and I want to help you. I want to help train you. I want to help equip you. So when I was 12, um, my youth pastor, who was also our, our worship leader at the church, um, and we were he was one of my mentors. We were, I was very close with him. Um, he called me in his office one day and said, um, you know, I, I don't know that it's my place to tell you what you're called to in this life. Um, he said, but I, I want you to know that I very much see a gifting for ministry and specifically in the area of worship. And if you, if you would let me, I'd love to mentor you in that. And I would love to walk alongside of you and help you develop in that. And so I said, yeah, of course. And, wow, um, awesome. and then from there, it was honestly felt very fast tracked. So I, I started, you know, just leading worship in the student, not just, I hate to say it that way. I started leading worship in the student ministry. And then he had me leading kind of side by side him on Sunday mornings when I was really young. I was in junior high and um, in high school and when he left, we had another worship leader who came on for a short time. And when she left, she asked me if I would step in as the interim. It was kind of a really quick leaving. She, she left very suddenly and we needed to fill the spot really quickly. And so my pastor, I was 18. I, it was the weekend I graduated from high school. And he said, would you, would you step in and be our worship leader? I learned a lot from that being in, a, you know, having a staff role when I was so young, but a lot of it very much, I think was the church saying, we see this gifting our people from the church saying, let, let me help you because I, I think you're meant to grow in this. Yeah. What a great example of the church being the church. That's oh, yeah. so wonderful to hear. You know, I've had a lot of guests on and some have had more pour into them more than others. A lot of them obviously had the experience resistance. So right. I'm always excited when I hear people who are like the church pouring into women specifically, but then just leaders in general yeah. and doing what we're called to do and develop, you know, making disciples and raising up leaders. Yay. Anytime I see something positive, I just feel like I need to applaud. Yeah. That's, you know? and that's really interesting that you say that because I, when I first got out here, obviously the lead pastor at the time when I arrived here, Beth faced a lot of resistance and I didn't understand it. I didn't understand that world. I remember having conversations with her where she would kind of ask me to share my story and other women on this staff would ask me to share my story. And I never felt like I faced that type of resistance until I got out here and then started to look back at my story and realized some of those moments that I didn't 
process them as that in the time, but I was always in churches where there were a lot of women um, on the pastoral staff and a lot of women leading, leading in really, really powerful and empowering ways. And I, I was always in situations too, where people were empowering me to lead too. I do think though, I don't know if it's okay for me to say this, but <laughs> There is a huge difference. People see a large disparity in what's acceptable for women when it's in the realm of music and children. Um, and so I didn't face a lot of adversity because I fit in the mold. I was leading music. And so for people that even wouldn't necessarily affirm or feel like they could call me pastor, they could call me music director, or they could call me, you know, like whatever it kind of felt more comfortable in that sense. And so more of my um, friends who are women in ministry are, are in preaching roles and, and things like that, where there's, it's, there's just a difference. People just perceive it differently. So I think that's probably one of the reasons I didn't <laughs> have as much resistance. I kind of was fitting the mold. Yeah, true. In some ways, right? Children, worship, although worship is newer, right? I think with the contemporary music, whatever scene that came, came, rose up in like whatever the eighties and nineties that helped bridge that gap. Um, right. And then of course, mich- mission work, can do mission work. I'm like, well, what about the mission work here where we live Um, of taking the mission and the gospel? So then obviously I'm assuming since you were in Chicagoland, you went to Olivet. I did (laughs) (laughs) two degrees there. I never meant to. I always wanted to leave. I love Bourbon. I loved my home hometown. I loved my upbringing, but I just always had a little bit more of an adventurous spirit. I wanted to go somewhere else and experience a new place. Um, my, my dad got a job at Olivet when I was a sophomore in high school. And so that afforded me free tuition. And after that, it was like, we're going to Olivet. <laughs> we're going oh, yeah. to accept that major blessing. And then I um, was able to get a graduate assistantship position to do my master's there too, to pay for my master's. So really, really thankful um, yeah. <laughs> that I had two degrees. That's awesome. So what are your degrees in? So my undergraduate is in music ministry and my, I have a master's of arts in Christian ministry. So you pretty much knew you were going in, you were going for, to be a worship pastor. No, I, I always have wanted to do something with um, involving music and students. And I, I still very much am involved in that realm. Um, and so I think for, and I love teaching. So I actually was a music education major for three years, uh, planning to pursue secondary education. Um, I wanted to be a high school music teacher. There's still part oh. of me that loves that idea. Um, and it wasn't until going into my senior year that I switched my major to ministry. Um, there was, there's a whole backstory there, but um, yeah, it, I, I didn't know that. I think I, I kind of was resistant to that for a while, <clears throat> especially after having the job at 18 and just getting a little burnt out <laughs> pretty young from it. Um, just by nature of trying to manage that when you're so young and trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, so no, I, I, I didn't exactly know, but once uh, there was a very pivotal moment in my junior year that um, there was a shift and I realized hmm, that's what I need to pursue. Yeah. Well, it's probably good to always have that, have that ability to do a second job. You don't want to say secular yeah. job, right? Because we really think it, it's all holy Absolutely. You know, when, we, when we're surrendered to Christ, it's all holy, yep. but a, a job outside of the church world. Um, yes. having that because very few of us end up on staff at large churches like you do, right. you know, like, uh, you know, so we're, I'm bivocational. My whole staff is bivocational. Yep. Um, that's just the, the reality of the church having that, uh, other, you know, Hey, if I need to, I can do this. Yeah. And so when your master's, what was the focus on that? There's a story there too. So I was originally doing, 
um, a master's in like family ministry and student ministry specifically. Um, and the way all of it has their practical ministry programs, I really love this for their for the master's students. You you have to do as a part of it a a year long placement. It's not an internship. It's not a apprentice under a pastor or anything like that. The placement is really, they put you in the role that you're wanting to be. So what in family ministry, whatever that is, if it's children's pastor or youth pastor or whatever, they put you in that role, but then they connect you with a mentor who is in that role somewhere in that area. Because of a situation with my husband's role in ministry at the time, we weren't going to be moving and there were no positions in my area that were available for me to do my placement. There were places we were looking at elsewhere, but we had decided to stay in Bourbonnais to really serve in his ministry as well. And so because of that, I wasn't going to be able to do my placement. I wasn't going to be able to finish that program until I could. And so I just broadened it my last year to Christian ministry, which essentially allowed me to take all the electives that I wanted, which were the ones in student ministry, but broadened it so that I didn't have a placement. When I talk about it, I tell people like my emphasis really was in student ministry. That's what I studied all along. Um, but it was really just in the end that I decided to have a little bit of a broader title. Also knowing that if I did ever want to teach someday, that there was a little bit more room there um, that I could dive into a couple different areas in ministry as opposed to like a hyper-focused program that would have given me, I don't know, expertise in one area. Now, I know you write music. Yeah. So did you start doing that at Mentino or when you got to California? I started writing music when I was 12. It was right around oh. that time that I started leading worship as well. Um, and I think honestly, that was because I had taken piano lessons since I was five years old, like classical piano lessons, but it wasn't until I started playing in worship settings that I started to learn how to improvise a little bit more. And so as I started to understand chord structures and what imp improvisation looked like, it gave me more tools to be able to write. So I, I do think there was a link there. Actually, what caused me to dive into songwriting is... I had a classmate who, I was in seventh grade, I had a classmate who was suddenly diagnosed with cancer and he was gone very quickly. And I didn't know how to process that in my 13-year-old brain and my 13-year-old heart. And I didn't have the tools to understand really what that would mean for the reality of our class going forward and thinking about his parents and his family and the just the deep anguish that that would cause. And I remember one day I walked home from the bus stop it was the day that I found out that he had passed and I walked home from the bus stop and I, all I knew to do, I just went straight out to the piano. The piano was in our garage, <laughs> went straight out to the piano and sat down and just started playing. And like what poured forth was a song um, that I ended up writing about him and about his life for his family. After that, I realized that that was very much a way that I processed, that I could process that praying through music um, and storytelling through music was not only really cathartic for me, but was something that could be a gift to other people. And did that kind of, so was that like the start of it? I, I'm curious, like, was it one of these, okay, I just needed to write this and then put it on the back burner for a while? Or was it kind of one of those things where once you started doing it, it just started flowing in like you couldn't, kind of couldn't stop? Yeah. Once I started, I realized like that is an energy I would like to continue to tap into. <laughs> and so I, I started writing a lot. And a lot of the early songs are I don't know. You're written by 13 year olds. Yeah. 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 Um, but I learned a lot. And, and as I started, people started encouraging me to share the songs um, again in my church. And I remember I wrote my first worship song called Stronghold anyway. Um, but I uh, shared it in the church and there was someone that came up to me and said, Hey, I have a recording studio. Um, and I really, really just feel like God has laid it on my heart to 
ask you to do this for free. Like, I really want your song to be heard. And so it was, uh, again, kind of just more affirmation from, from people that that was something that, well, and then also in, in that same context, um, the song that I had written for my friend who had passed away, it got back to him. I, um, I had friends who were very close to his family and it got back to them, his mom that I had written that song. And she said, I really want to hear that song. I really want that. And that's when it kind of clicked for me. Yeah, this is a way that I can process, but this isn't just for me. This is, this is for other people too. And then when, when that man in my church said, I really want to do this for free because I think this song needs to be heard, just kind of propelled that forward in me that this is for me, but it's not just for me. It kind of set in motion, this creative part of me that just unlocked. Yeah. So I should tell everybody they can follow you on Spotify. Oh yeah. Please. We'll make sure we link to that. So you're just writing music now all the time for Sunday, for, you know, for your own congregation for. I do a little bit of a blend. Um, I try to, I try to remain pretty balanced in, um, this has really just been since the, like, I would say in the last four years that I've learned this muscle, but for anyone that writes, you would, you know, you could understand this. There's, there's times that you sit down and write because it, that's what comes out of you. Um, cause you're processing and there's times where you sit down and you know, okay, I have to write about this thing. And so how can I write about this thing? Um, and so I try to find a good balance of songs that come out of experience and songs that come out of prayer and songs that, for example, I, for a while, I, ha I haven't done this for the pandemic for a variety of reasons, during the pandemic for a variety of reasons, but I was writing a theme song for each preaching series that we went through and our church oh, was fun. every week yeah, of the series. And for, for that, I very much more view that as a tool of formation. This might be a tangent, so stop me if you're not interested in this, but I really, I really believe that specifically worship leaders that have the ability to songwrite should, if they can, because we outsource so much of our worship music in churches. We, you know, we take songs that were written in other contexts by fill in the blank, big name, worship band or worship artist, which, which is fine. Um, that's great. The things that are written um, are true about God and we can sing those things. But also a lot of times those songs were written for those contexts, those specific churches and those communities. And I, and I feel that if I can, if I can write songs um, for this community, for this context, for what God is doing in and through us in this time that I should, um, because it makes it, it gives us a little bit more of an anthem that we can sing as a community and something that, that really feels present with, um, kind of being a part of the action of God in our, in our particular local community. So I started doing that, writing a song for every sermon series. Um, and we'd sing it every week, uh, just again, as a tool for formation to kind of remind people of the themes that we were journeying through in the series and the things we were hoping people would take away. Yeah. And then your pastor, did she like, how long did she have long series? Were they longer, like eight, 12 weeks? So we, we plan the series together. Um, it really depends. So we, we really love the liturgical calendar, um, here. And so we do follow that. Like if we're doing a Lenten series, we'll do it for all of Lent. If we're doing an Advent series, it's, it's for the duration of Advent during like common time, ordinary time and stuff like that those are times that we maybe would split things up. I would say shortest series is, is like four weeks for Advent. Longest one was 11 weeks, but typically we fall around six, seven. So you're writing several songs a year. Yeah. Do you do, do you have like a format that you do? Like you sit down and say like, I'm taking the next two weeks or whatever. And I'm just writing songs all day long. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, when I'm writing specifically with themes in mind, when I'm writing for the church, 
this is maybe a weird process, but this is my process. Um, so I'm a part of all of the conversations with the creative team and our worship and production team about, and the preaching team about what things that, what, um, what we're hoping um, the series will will do and will spark and all of that. So I'm, I'm very much ruminating on those things as well. Um, and so a lot of times I will just, I'll spend the weeks in conversation, just really soaking up all that I can from the spirit in regard to, okay, where are we headed? Like, what is the goal of this? What, what is the language we're going to use? Cause sometimes there's very common language that we'll use, you know, from sermon to sermon. And then I will just take note of all of those things. And, and then as the days go on, reflect on those things. Okay. What, do, what does that mean to me? What does, what does that mean to our church? What does that mean for our community? And then by the time I've really just spent time, <laughs> like kind of like a crock pot, letting that all just kind of soak in, then I will sit down and, t- and it's typically a couple hours. I will say, okay, this is what I know. Um, the song needs to be about. These are the themes that need to be involved. This is the language that needs to be involved. These are scriptures that have inspired me in this area and have grown me in that area. And then I'll take a couple hours and knock it out. Do you like to read poetry? Are you a poetry? Do you? I do. I am not a poetry. I just, <laughs> I'm like, I don't like to read. I, I like listening to music, but I don't. Uh-huh. Are there either writers or musicians that really inspire you that inspire you that kind of and I don't want to necessarily say that you imitate them but as much as they maybe they inspire and feed into that creativeness in you yeah so I would say there are a few I am very much inspired by by Billy Joel's storytelling um Billy oh, Joel's yeah fantastic storyteller often his songs tell a story that's very, very compelling. Whereas, you know, some songwriters, they're, you know, they're processing or, but his are, they're pointed, they're stories. Another person who does that is Randy Newman. Um, Randy Newman tells great stories. And so I'm, I'm inspired by that aspect of songwriting from those people. Ben Rector, I don't know if you're familiar with Ben Rector, but he, he is really honest. Like his, his songs, you'll find yourself crying and laughing in the same song just because his language is really honest. And so I pull from that sometimes when I, um, when I'm really wanting to just like get to the heart of something and I don't want it to be flowery. I don't want it to be poetic. I just want it to be (laughs) really cut and dry. Um, not that he doesn't have poetic songs too. He does, but he's just really honest. I appreciate that. John Mayer is a huge influence for me in regard to sound and, um, influence. He, he's a, he is a master, of melody and of creating a hook and he he's a he's a master of creating a song that just feels good that when you listen to it so musically I'm very inspired by by John Mayer and then I would say another that is really inspiring to me is Audrey Asad I love Audrey Asad she is an artist who um she's a Catholic worship leader and an artist who she has songs that are very specifically like albums that are worship songs and then albums that are not and I I very much am that way too. I, I have songs that, like we said earlier, it's all sacred, but songs that are specifically for the church and songs that are not specifically for the church. And she also is a woman singer-songwriter who leads from the piano, which is what I do. Um, and so a lot of times her her melodies and the way that she intertwines that with driving from the piano um, is really inspiring to me because so much so much songwriting these days is driven from a guitar. Um, I don't play the guitar. <laughs> so, and so Billy Joel as well is, is that too, but I would say the combination of those, um, those have, are really influential to me. You mentioned this. I want to go back to it because the non-music people who are listening maybe <laughs> don't understand this, but those of us who preach totally understand it. There's a difference between a corporate worship song and an individual worship or <laughs> 
song that you just listened to by yourself on the radio because not everything works in the corporate setting. So will you just speak a little bit into that? (laughs) Okay. So so that I think honestly is one of the greatest like heartaches of a worship leader because people are always telling you songs they want to sing that might be wonderful songs for the devotional moment at home or might be a wonderful song for driving in your car and praising Jesus while you're while you're going to where you're going but maybe not necessarily the best to form the community and so first I'll speak to my response to that often. I've decided I'm I'm letting my secret out. People might hear this that have heard me say this before. Um, But when people send me songs that I I know I'm not going to use in a corporate setting, because even though it's a great song, it just wouldn't work that well um, for that setting. I I always say, I'm so glad that song is blessing you. I'm so glad that song is encouraging you. (laughs) It gets me out of having to say, yeah, we'll use that or we won't use that because I am. I'm glad that those songs are forming our people. How do I how do I choose that? First of all, the language of it, if it is, I, I do think that they're. I've gone back and forth on this in my journey as a worship leader, but I I do think it's appropriate sometimes for there to be songs that's I and me language. I do think that there are moments where that being able to be in a room where the collective is singing a personal thing can can be impactful. However, I think that if we live in that space, we, we really just play into the notion that like, let's just close our eyes and turn the lights off because it's just me and God. And we forget that that's not at all what the gathered church is. The whole point of gathering is to be together and to worship the Lord together, to encourage one another, to build one another up. And so I care deeply, first of all, about seeing each other. I'm funny about lights. I want the lights on. I want people to see each other. And I, and I want us to be able to sing, sing things that are we, that are us, that are our, that use that type of language. Also, just in regard to theology, yes, um, there are so many, so, so many songs that, again, we outsource them and we outsource them from worship leaders in different contexts and different traditions. That's not necessarily going to resonate with our Wesleyan Nazarene heritage. And, and so I, I deeply, deeply invested in making sure that the songs that we sing are forming people theologically in the ways that we want to form people theologically. I'm kind of known for changing words and songs. Um, I'm pretty un- unapologetic about that. <laughs> if it's a great song, but there's, there's a phrase or a couple words that really kind of put it in a different camp theologically than, than we are, or kind of move into a fundamentalist type. And that's another reason why I, I firmly believe in songwriting, <laughs> if you can, because um, you're from the tradition. There's a lot of analysis for me that goes into every song that we sing. If it's not going to build up the church, if it is not going to remind us of who we are to be, um, if it is not going to resonate with our theology and our tradition, I'm not going to use it. I think that's great. And, and we have, you know, my worship leader, worship leader will do that too. Even with some of the, the hymns of the church. No, I didn't grow up in the church. And so my, and the only, my faith background is Catholic. So we had a whole different set of songs. Oh yeah. But I will say one of the things about the hymns that do tend to be different from the contemporary music is that idea that they really are intentional about trying to teach theology while you're singing. They're singing in a Baptist church and they're writing their songs for a Baptist congregation. Their theology is going to look different. You know, it's going to lean Calvin, not Wesley. And there's some big points there theologically that we're not teaching that or we're teaching Mm -hmm. it differently from the pulpit. And so whether the pulp is the written word or the sung word, we do need to make 
sure of that. And I, and I do think that there's a lot of conflict that happens in the church because we are singing, we're teaching them one thing. So we get up and we sing for 20, 30 minutes and we're yeah. singing a completely different set of theological really. positions. Than, really. And then, and then the preacher gets up and he or she preaches for 30 minutes, a completely different Absolutely. theological perspective. Yeah. And I'm really committed I will continue to learn. And I, I, I'm fully aware that I could look back at myself in 10 years and be like, what were you thinking, you know, about things? I know that. And I, and I know that that's part of like the hope of Romans 12, one and two, that the spirit renews our minds. And that means my mind might change about things. And I, I understand that. And so I want to be careful to say this because I, I very well could be <laughs> a problem in some of this, but I really, really work to not be any instrument and why people would have to deconstruct things later. (laughs) Not that deconstruction is bad. I think that that, that's a natural part, you know, of kind of coming into really understanding what your faith is and and where the legs are with that. But if I can help it, I really don't want to be a part of, of what someone 10 years later is thinking, well, I was taught this and I, this is what I was formed in. And now I, I really don't feel like that's consistent with the Jesus that I know or and, and it's also, um, you kind of touched on this. I highly value collaboration. I very much understand my role as formation, but totally in partnership with, with the pastor. I, I want to be, I never want to put a pastor in a situation where I've just sung something that they then have to feel like they're contradicting in their sermon that they already prepared. Cause that's a really right. awkward spot for anyone to be in. And it's very confusing for the congregation. We're, we're aware of where this, what the scope of this service is. I get really, really discouraged. Um, I, I traveled for four years leading worship at different churches and youth camps and district assemblies and stuff like that. And so I spent a lot of time partnering and leading worship with a lot of different types of pastors and a lot of different preachers and speakers. And I would get really discouraged when the speaker would say, you just do your thing and I'll just do my thing. I would feel so oh, uncomfortable with that. I, I hate it. I just really hate that because, or people would say, just sing about Jesus and you'll be fine. And I always felt like, of course, sing about Jesus and we'll be fine, but please don't diminish like the, the power that can happen when we partner well. And when there's like a, when there's a journey in the service that we lead people through collaboration is really important to me. There is a theology of worship and that when we first started, when I planted 10 years ago, Uh, And I had someone who stepped in and that's not her vocation. So she's not a worship pastor, but she's been leading music in church. Um, She has, you know, that music background, that degree. She, and she grew up in the church. So she understood, she understood that theology. So we did work together and tried to make sure that what the congregation was going to be singing would be in step with. And so we would get together about once a quarter and I kind of lay out preaching for the next three months. Uh, and so then she would try to make sure that, that, that they fit together. And I am so like pro preaching teams, if you can, you know, I, I understand there are some settings that's not an option. Like, you know, there's one lead pastor and, and they need to carry it. Um, but yeah, if you have an option to do that, I'm, I just, I'm so affirming of that because I think, especially if you're being collaborative about it, you know, and talking through, um, from week to week, like right now in our interim per- period, Terabeth, pastor Terabeth had, um, put the preaching team in place, you know, while she was here, but it's been such a gift during this interim time. Cause we still have four preachers who, you know, are able to preach once a month now. And, and people are so enjoying just hearing, you know, hearing different voices. And I don't know, I just, I think it's great to see, um, the different giftings and how that kind of manifests, um, in the preaching moment. I was thinking about something that you said as well. We were just talking about the song selections and 
this is not something that I say because I'm a worship leader. <laughs> this is something that I say just based off of experience with talking with people. I do think that oftentimes people will walk away remembering like a main thought from the sermon, you know, or a main like takeaway, but they will also walk away humming and singing the songs that they sang. Those will come back throughout the week, you know, Wednesday mornings, a song that you sang on Sunday will come to your mind. And, and for me, I believe that if that's happening and people are going to sing those songs and think of those songs and hum those songs throughout the week, I really, really want them to be formative in a good way. And I want those, the words and the messages of those songs to be something that is again, going to form us all as a community. Okay. Is this, is this a song that I want to continue to live (laughs) in the hearts of our people? Is this, um, or is this just one that I really like? Yeah. I was thinking today about the song, the goodness of God. I'm like, when we finally get to sing again, I want that to be one of the first songs. And I'm like, okay, but I have no idea what I'm going to be preaching whenever that happens. Right. (laughs) You know, the brain science behind corporate singing is fascinating. Mm -hmm. The idea of we really do get in sync with one another when we sing together biologically. It's something that happens that only happens when you're together because it is a, it's a proximity thing. And it's bizarre how God created us that way. He created us for community that, you know, even when we're together and we're singing together, that we actually become one in a sense. Yep. Absolutely. And, and singing has just this really unique, powerful way of doing that. No matter what setting you're in, it's so unifying. Music is such a universal language because melody doesn't have a certain language connected to it. You know, rhythm doesn't have a certain language connected to it. Melody and and rhythm and the combination of that is across cultures, across the world, um, something that we can, that we can find commonality. in. and my husband and I, my I've talked about, I've mentioned that I really love Billy Joel. So before we moved out here, I think maybe a year before I moved out here, I got to see Billy Joel. I was like, I need to see, I need to see Billy Joel before he's not touring anymore. That's just a goal of mine. And so there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people there. There was a moment where he was playing piano man, of course, course. (laughs) the entire band cut out. And he said, I just want to hear you sing it. And it was thousands of people singing at the top of their lungs. This sing us the song, you know, you're the piano man. And it was one of those things where this might sound really cheesy, but my husband and I just looked at each other after and we just had chills and we were like, that, that is what happens when music takes over a little bit, because I guarantee you that in that, in that arena were people from all different walks of life with all different stories, with all different backgrounds of all different political views, whatever you want to say. But in that moment, like there was something that was happening in solidarity. Everybody was entering that moment together and it was singing and, and we absolutely have that opportunity in the church. And I, I think sometimes we miss it because, you know, we try to make the music too cool or whatever it is. And right. a lot of times even thinking through like the volume of music. Now I know that's a really touchy subject. I like loud music too, but I think sometimes we, our goal is like the goal in like very much in contemporary worship music is like, let's make it as loud and as like big and as and make the room as dark as possible and everything so that people don't even really have to like hear themselves sing. They can just like experience what's going on. And maybe there's a time and place for that, but it totally takes out the communal element of being able to hear one another and having that moment of, oh, like this, this is a community moment. I love acapella singing as much as I can without it being used too much for that reason too. So people, especially in our sanctuary, it's just so big. That song, Piano Man, again, like you mentioned, the idea of his storytelling it really captures this, just the humanness of people. And so anybody can relate. You don't have to yeah. be one of those people in that song to be able yeah. to relate to what he's Absolutely. saying. And 
And the same is true. That's really what we're trying to do on, you know, when we gather together to worship, you know, the greatest story, you know, was that you know, God came down, became like us, not so that he can relate to us, but so that we can relate to him, maybe catch a glimpse of something bigger and, and greater. And, you know, and so being able to capture that story and tell that story, whether it's through the sung word or the spoken word, unites us in such a magnificent way. Now you have a new single coming out. I do today. That hasn't been announced yet. I'm going to announce it after this. Yeah, it's called Psalm 2020. It's coming out as a part of a collection of three songs that I um, am calling Letters from the Living Room, which is where I've spent most of my time the last 10 months. And so this one will come out in January and then a couple more to follow as as the year goes on. But really excited about this one. It's a it's a little bit of Psalm of Lament um, and also a little bit of Psalm of I guess more a prayer. There's kind of a, a personal aspect to it in, in my own journey. Um, but then also as that relates to just kind of what I've seen in a deconstruction of, of the church in, in recent years and kind of some of the some of the pitfalls, I think, of our evangelical culture and, and yeah. just kind of a cry for us as a church to to sing a new song, to sing a different song than maybe we have collectively. I feel I didn't mean for it to be really poignant at the time that it was released, but I feel like it is. I appreciate your, your pastor and your, and your staff, you know, you and, and the rest of your staff speaking into these things. It's hard to be a, it's hard to be a prophetic voice. Yeah. Takes, takes courage. Cause you know, you're going to get, you're going to get those who are going to say, you know, a sigh of relief and say, thank you for speaking what has been on my heart or giving words to what was there that I couldn't articulate. And then of course you'll get those who will, you know, push back and I hate to say their eyes haven't been open, but it's just hard for them to see it a different way from a different yeah. perspective. Yeah. For me, I, I very much feel there's a prophetic sense in my call, but very much also a priestly sense in my call. And that is a, as I'm sure you are fully aware, <laughs> um, just a, a hard balance sometimes between wanting to really care for people and walk with people in their journey of discipleship and also wanting to like call out what is, you know, I really believe like not the way of Jesus. And sometimes those things work really beautifully together. And sometimes I think that they challenge one another, which, which voice am I allowed <laughs> to use in this moment? Which voice really does, does God want me to use in this moment? And I struggle with that. Uh, sometimes the, the moments of, okay, there's really something to name here <laughs> so that we can really just posture ourselves before the spirit to transform that and renew that. But when I name it, the people that I really care for and the people that I love and that I'm journeying with and that I care about their discipleship journey, are going to be angry at me <laughs> for it. Yeah. It's scary when you, you see the track record of most, of most of the prophets were either beheaded or thrown in a latrine. So right. You're like, well, let's see, which one do I want to be? <laughs> right. I don't know that I want to be like naked in the street eating scrolls. Like that's not, <laughs> that's not my life goal as a pastor. So you're releasing those and people can hear them on Spotify and iTunes? A little bit differently this time. Long story short, it, it is a big financial investment to put music out. And so, and there's not a very good return on that investment when you go immediately to streaming services because we just, we live in a world where like new music is only new for people for like a second. And people are just not as apt to purchase music as much as they would listen to it on Spotify anymore, which is just not super great for artists. And so what we're going to do with each of these 
we are going to release them only on my website for the first couple of weeks and then they will go to streaming services. So then if they go, they go there, they, they can purchase it for download. Is that how it works? Yes. We're getting, uh, we're getting a following. So I shouldn't say we, I say we, like, it's just me. <laughs> I don't know who this we is. <laughs> I feel, I feel this like this, co- I'm an Enneagram six. It's all things okay. community. So I'm yep. just like, we, there's, there's somebody who yeah, helping me or believes in me, so I can say we. But Absolutely. I believe in you. Yeah. Uh, so I usually ask to sh- just share either words of wisdom, and you know, sometimes I'll say for the woman who has a call to ministry, mm-hmm. but even just from you're at a unique church. It's a larger church for the Nazarene denomination. Your pastor who just resigned, she you know, a, a female lead pastor yeah. at a large church. Um, that's also a historic church. So it's not like it's, I'm the lead pastor, but I planted it and we're 10 years old. It's, t- it's a whole different thing when your church yeah. is like a hundred and something years old. Just words of wisdom as you've gone through this last year and navigating that you have for new clergy coming through that are like, am I going to survive? Oh gosh. Something I have had to to learn in some of the most painful ways um, in specifically in this last year is how to have healthy boundaries, but to still be really engaged with a community that probably sounds really negative or cynical, but how to recognize when a situation in ministry is one that I really need to dive into head first and how to recognize when it's something that I really need to walk away from and being able to accept the wisdom in both of those types of situations. And I don't know how much I can say about this. All all I will say is that Paznaz is a, a beautiful church. It's also very complex and it's um, like you said, it's it's an old church. It's been around for a long time. And any time that there's a church that's been around for a long time, it means that there's been a lot of time for the culture to develop. And there are parts of the culture of this church that are so beautiful and so generous and so loving and some parts that are just really, really ugly. <laughs> when those things start to kind of rear their heads and the effects of that type of culture rear their heads, I've just really had to learn I alone, first of all, am not the savior. Second of all, (laughs) I am not the savior of this people. I I am not pastoring this people alone. There's a whole team of people here that are able to speak into situations in different ways. And that's something I've, I've had to learn. And then also just to truly be who you are and who God has called you to be in ministry. Um, And if you find yourself, I think this is something I've been encouraging people with. If you find yourself in a setting that feels completely incongruent with the things that God has placed on your life, you don't have to stay. (laughs) I think, I think I grew up in a, in a culture that taught me that following Jesus was supposed to be hard and you would be called to the hard things and everything would just be really hard. And I do think that's true in some aspects, but I also, I also don't know that that ministry is just supposed to be just hard or that it's, you know what I mean? I think that there is a, there is a little bit of an aspect of the, for people that find themselves in settings. And I do think specifically women for people that find themselves in settings that do not receive them, there is a little bit of the shake the dust off and, and, and move on to the next town kind of a thing. So I don't know, that's a little hard hitting, but I think knowing who you are in ministry, knowing, knowing truly what the spirit has cultivated in you, the things that you are meant to to help birth in a community, the things that you are meant to help bring to light in a community. And if those things are absolutely not received and you are met with so much resistance that you um, wonder if you're even mentally going to be able to handle another day, you don't always have to stay. (laughs) You can, you can trust the Lord to guide you to, um, to a place that, 
that will receive what the word that he has given you in a different way. So, and I think boundaries is definitely connected to that. Yeah. I would agree that sometimes we outstay, we stay, we stay longer than we were supposed to. Mm -hmm. Good goodbyes are better than (laughs) bad goodbyes. Yeah, absolutely. It is hard knowing when, but stay a little bit longer than we should have. It doesn't, it's not good for either, you know, it's not good for the individual. It's not good for the community. And And I I think it also causes us to like live in a scarcity place instead of a place of love, Um, a place of, well, I don't really know if I have enough emotional capital here to deal with this, or I don't know if I have enough relational capital here to truly minister. And so we start to hoard, you know, kind of our resources with our energy and our, what we're willing to really give of ourselves to a community. I think anytime we get to that place, there's definitely definite self-evaluation that has to happen. And sometimes it means stay and sometimes it means go. It's hard to discern that in a year like 2020. So it's really hard to know, you know, do you stay or do you go? And and so there, there will be probably a lot of pastors that sometime this year will say, yeah, it wasn't just 2020. And then there'll be some who'll be like, it wasn't just 2020, but 2020 was the last (laughs) It was the nail in the coffin, so to speak. (laughs) I've got nothing left. Yeah. I think that maybe... We don't extend much grace to our pastors. Like we extend a lot of grace to our congregation. And then to pastors, we're like, yeah, but you don't get any extra grace. You don't get bonus grace. If right. you screw this up, God will never forgive you. Like, well, because yeah. there's so there's so much of a of a consumer and materialistic culture that is just like deep rooted now at this point in the evangelical church that tells people, oh, these pastors are my like hired professionals. And if they don't give me the service that I'm, (laughs) that I'm hoping for, you know, then I'll take my, my business elsewhere. Like I hate to put it in the, in that brash of terms, but there's so much of that. So yeah, I think there's little grace in the same way that someone would write a Yelp review for food that they don't like. They're like, well, I didn't like what that pastor said. So, (laughs) or what they did. So I'm done. Thanks be to God for being the grace that is sufficient for us. I mean that because that is, that is my song. Yeah, he's good. He has, he has been good even through 2020, even when there's times where I don't want to say it. I kind of can't wait to see what things are, are birthed and renewed in the church after, after this past year. I think that there was, though it was so difficult and, and painful and still is, and is wearisome the stepping back from being able to gather all the time and the stepping back from like the go, go, go of church programming. I'm still very hopeful that there's something about that that will cause a refocus in in a lot of churches. And I hope so. I was listening to one that was from May of 2020 and I laughed out loud because the guy's like, yeah, I mean, we don't know if this is going to last six weeks or six months. We were so unprepared. We were so ignorant in the true sense of the word. Yes. Yes. Just clueless. Anyway, I remember sometime around May saying, you know, to God saying, I kind of hope this doesn't, I kind of hope this isn't over in like two months. I feel like there was a sense of where everybody was just having this tantrum. All of a sudden they act, they were acting like two-year-olds. And I'm like, the two-year-olds are actually acting better than the adults. I thought, man, this is a, what a great time for God to do a purging and burning mm-hmm. off of dross of mm-hmm. all of our selfishness that's been kind of covered up. Yep. It's been easy. It's easy to cover it up mm-hmm. when you can have whatever you want, whenever mm-hmm. you want it. And you can show up and sing these songs that make you feel better. Now you got to deal with your stuff. 
Yeah. And I mean, I didn't think it was going to take over a year to burn off the dross. No, oh, like, man. oh man, I feel bad praying that prayer now. Well, there's a lot of things to burn off. It just, <laughs> I don't know. I guess it takes more time. I'm, I'm like, I'm the, more, the more it burns, the more that comes up. I'm like, <laughs> this is really ugly. I do think that if we, for those who choose to really look at it, I think about that, the illustration in, in the Old Testament. And I think it isn't Jeremiah talks about being refined like silver. The idea of is that the hotter it gets, the more the impurities come to the top and then the silversmith skims that off. Yeah. And then new stuff comes up and new stuff comes up. And I think that for those of us who really let God come in and skim off the impurities and the dross and let it get hotter and hotter and hotter, parts of the church um, are going to be so beautiful and they're going <laughs> to shine and they're going to, yeah. I mean, the, the idea of that silversmith is to get it so, so much dross, you know, removed that you can see your reflection in it. And yep. so we should get to that point where the yep. world can start to see the reflection of Christ in us. And yep. it's so, it's so polluted. The church is so polluted in America yep. right now. It's hard to see the image of Christ. And yep. I, I hope so. I hope that yep. by the end of 21, there's a little more of a reflection of Christ in us that, yep. that the world can see. I do too. There's certainly been lots of unveiling and as things continue to get unveiled, you know, to continue to, again, yeah, name them and, and put them before, as you're saying, let the spirit refine. And I do, I have deep hope for that. And there have been moments in this last year where I have been like, I don't know where that hope is coming from because I don't have hope in the church. I I'm saying those are moments. I do have hope in the church, but I've had moments where I've just felt like, I don't know. I'm not sure anymore. I don't, I just don't know. I do. I, I still firmly believe that the church is God's redemptive and restorative plan for his creation. And I believe if that's true, then, then we, we will continue to see, see things shift and think these are growing pains, really, really painful ones, but growing pains. Yeah. Uh, I'm reminded of Paul when he says, even when we are faithless, he is faithful mm-hmm. and never really understood the full implication of that verse. And and so now we're looking at the church that is, for the most part, we're unfaithful and we don't put our hope in humanity. We put our hope in Christ. Uh, well, I'm excited about the, the music. I'm going to get Thank over you. there and I'm going to um, get the, get that link. This has been great. I'm excited. Thanks for inviting me on for today. Yeah.